Hey, everybody. Welcome to Going With Fishes podcast. Apparently, I have this uh, podcast also playing in the background in multiple places somehow. I apologize for that. Uh, huh. Why is it still playing? We'll figure this out, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody, hey, for watching. Hey, welcome to Going With Fishes podcast. Oh. Looks like it's on Kevin's end, maybe? Kevin, let me All right. I apologize, guys. I finally figured it out. <laughs> we had a uh, a weird glitch there. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. I sincerely apologize. Uh, we have episode 302 today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Kevin McKernan. Um, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Uh, Kevin actually had an awesome paper out the other day, and I really wanted to make sure that we had a chance to um, touch on it. And uh, he's one of our favorite guests to have on the show. And uh, we're happy to have him back again today. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us today, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me back. I always enjoy coming on, Steve. This is a uh, whole biocontrol thing, as I, I understand, kind of dear to your heart. Good to go over some of these things. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand, too, when they get false positives or false negatives and things like that. And don't understand why it's happening or don't understand where the issue is. They think that they did something wrong or they think that there's some other factor that they, you know, falsely um, attribute to some of these false positives that people are seeing in the market. And uh, you had a really great, great white paper out there. And I felt like it didn't get enough recognition in terms of, I didn't see it reposted a whole lot. And I wanted to make sure it really got the recognition and, and the, uh, where, um, the education out there and in the community that people really needed to know about what's going on. So you had this wonderful paper out the other day called um, Biocontrol Agents and Their Influence on Cannabis Testing on the Cannabis Testing Space. And uh, I thought it'd be great for you to, to kind of break it down for us because it was very intriguing. It talks about how Bactillus amphiquiliensis is um, causing false positives for things like aspergillus and uh, how certain aspergillus strains that are not at all cannabis positive are cannabis uh, affecting in terms of um, uh whether or not it's actually a, a health factor for people that are smoking it um, uh, can actually tell us false positive as well from other crops. So um, I'd love for you to, to tell us a little bit more about that. We have it up on the screen. We'll make sure we have a link to that in the description as well. Sure. So the credit uh, due here is really to Steve Cottrell and Christopher Marsh, the ones that brought this to attention. They, they were noticing a, uh, a higher failure rate for aspergillus in, um, in Arizona. So you know, what's, I think the, one of the lessons here is this was only noticeable uh, because uh, Christopher Marsh has labs in many states. And so he can see testing uh, differences state to state um, that aren't necessarily uh, um, obvious to us. We, you know, we, we sell a lot of these aspergillus testing kits, but we don't necessarily have um, any, um, any visibility on the percent positivity state to state. So we don't have like one of these COVID dashboards that could tell us like one state being um, better or worse. He does in many ways, and that he's got labs in multiple states. And noticed it was it's it's oddly elevated in Arizona. So he was trying to figure out what that was. Um, so he pointed out to us one of these um, 
uh, strains that is in, in frequent use down there known as AF36. It's actually an Aspergillus strain. Um, and this is a strain, so not bacillus. We mentioned bacillus in the paper because that's another biocontrol agent that's often used in, um, uh, for, for other reasons. But in this case, uh, people are using this Aspergillus strain, AF36, often known as Afligard, um, to basically put onto, onto plants, usually it's like cotton or, or other plants in the, in the neighborhood, uh, to basically um, outcompete the ones that make mycotoxins. So it's a, it's, it's a good idea, right? That if you don't want to have aspergillus that makes mycotoxins, put another aspergillus on there that doesn't make them. Um, so this AF36 is, uh, uh, the interesting thing about it is it's a single point mutation in the genome that makes a change. Uh, it knocks out one of the aflatoxin genes. Um, so you're never going to be able to differentiate this with like just plating them because you got to get down at the single base level to sort these out. And even our test that's current in the marketplace doesn't differentiate them because we're not looking at that gene, we're looking at a different part of the genome. Uh, we did subsequently go and make a, a, a SNP-specific test that can split these if people need to, but it's regulators are going to want that for cannabis safety testing, mainly because both of these species can still give you aspergillosis. Like, they're still pathogenic to your lungs. One just doesn't make aflatoxin, the other does. So for, for agricultural products that aren't inhaled, it makes complete sense to use this stuff. But if it happens to be your neighbor and it's in the air for any reason or on the ground and you're tracking it in um, and you have elevated aspergillus, aspergillus fails, you, you might want to like dig a little deeper, uh, check your air filtering systems and, and just uh, you know ring us up or ring Christopher Marsh up. We have a, a, a test that's kind of an R&D here that can kind of differentiate whether it's AF36 or whether it is... Um, uh, you know, a, a wild type uh, toxin producing aspergillus. Uh, but the, the reason we wrote this up is that um, it, it, we continue to run into this. Biocontrol agents are really good ideas. I much rather fight pathogenic microbes with their non-pathogenic cousins than with chemicals. And are pushing us in the chemical direction as we have non-specific testing going on, it's like total aerobic count and total yeast and mold. We've, we've talked about this for hours in the past, but um, these tests don't give us um, really any specificities what the hell's on the plant. And I don't believe in the idea of, of growing plants in a bubble. Like, you know, you need nitrogen fixation, you need microbes. Microbes are part of growing plants. Uh, so penalizing people for having high numbers of them is rational if uh, you're not speciating them. Um, so that kind of, that was the impetus behind getting this, uh, this kind of written up there and out there. Cause it, a lot of people may not know that, that there are other biocontrol agents like this in use in other geographic regions, and they might be contributing to your false positives, or I should say your positive tests, which may not necessarily be pathogenically positive. They're positive according to a total aerobic count measurement, but you want to be able, I think we want to be able to bring cases like this forward to regulators and be like, look, you're putting two industries at odds here. You know, we've got the cotton industry that wants to use this and a cannabis industry that doesn't want it anywhere near them. And they're going to start fighting if we don't um, come up with sensible regulations that, that we're, we're both, we're both parties can use these things and, and not have one encroach on the other. Absolutely. And we see similar issues with E. coli. There's many species of E. coli, most of which are not human pathogenic. There's only a small percentage of them that are actually going to make you sick. But we see false positives all the time with water testing and aquaponics systems as well in a similar manner. 
um, to where you have these things that are testing hot or, or pathogenic in a test kit or from a testing lab, but in function are, are completely not the same species or have some other attributing factor. Is there any others that you've noticed since you do so much testing? Um, I know that many of the different mosaic viruses can you know, test hot as each other and other things. Is there any others out there that people should be aware of that um, you know, could potentially be a, a false positive, or you think that have relatives that are close that, you know, could so, potentially be an issue in the future that maybe don't have documentation? There, there's another Aspergillus uh, strain out there that's in use in other states um, under a different product name than Afligard. I have to look, uh, I've got to dig that one up, but I've, um, I'll forward that to you after this. It's escaping my memory right now, but yeah, there's another one. It has a different mutation. So it has it, it knocked out the gene different than, than this G to A mutation. Um, it's not in use in Arizona, though. It seems to be used in um, more of the southeast. I, I think they've they found that these different strains work um, more favorably in different climates, and so they're used accordingly. Um, the other one I've seen in, in a lot of products in garden stores is just the Bacillus, uh, however you pronounce its last name. We call it, we call it Bacillus Amy, but it's a, it's a complicated mouth twister. But um, that one is, um, we see quite a bit in stores and assume it gets used to fight powdery mildew and a variety of other things. And that's going to light up your tack counts. We know that. Um, so that, that's one that um, is, uh, you know, w- there should be more discussion about um, as Wait. well. With that in mind, do you think that people should not be using that? Batilla, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm horribly mispronouncing it because I can't pronounce Latin to save my life. I, but I know that's my problem too. Is I, I read these things, and everyone tells me <laughs> you mispronounced it. I'm like, well, I've never heard anyone else say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. No one else even tries to say it. I'm a bookworm. Um, <laughs> um, no, but uh, uh, is, uh, do you suggest that people not use that? Say, for instance, in flower or after, say, week two of flower to kind of prevent that proactively. Well, or? I, I don't know that it's necessarily pathogenic to humans. Um, so, I mean, this is the, the problem we have is we're, we're approaching everything as, as like any micro bad, you know, and that's just not reality. Um, you know, you're, it's just as many microbes in your body as there are human cells. So this is not something that, that we can play this um, hypochondriac game with. Uh, I, I, I think the, uh, we, need, we need obviously more information about, about those, but if they're used on products that are, you know, generally, generally considered safe on the other agricultural food products, I don't get overly worried about them on, on flour. Maybe if you're vaporizing them and they don't fully sterilize it, maybe there's some, you know, edge cases, but, you know, if it's going through extractor, not to worry if it's usually getting burnt, it's probably not, not, not much of a worry, but um, the, uh, this idea of um, ridding them all, I think is, uh, is ludicrous. Uh, We're never going to get there. I mean, I mean, and it's very arbitrary, right? Right now there's a hundred thousand counts of total aerobic counts that are, that are allowable, right? They don't, they don't care which kind, they're just saying 100,000 that grow on this plate type, which is a whole nother like selection factor of 95% of the stuff doesn't grow on that plate. So who cares? But they still have this 100,000 number, like it's scientifically meaningful. It's not, uh, you know, so you can have 99,000 E. coli 0157s on there. I mean, okay, that seems like uh, a hall pass for a whole lot of pathogenic E. coli. But if you have 101,000 of this, you know, lactobacillus you might have in yogurt and eat by the gallon, it's suddenly, you know, not okay. So the, the, the metrics are just make absolutely no sense. And I'm convinced this is something that was put in place for like 3M's benefit many years ago. It's just like, you know, an incumbent agency or, or, or corporation has figured out how to get regulators afraid of these things. And they've put them in and rubber stamped them on every damn product going forward, including making its way into cannabis. But there's absolutely no clinical information behind this. There's no clinical reason why that threshold is dangerous on cannabis. It was never actually measured. It was just superimposed in the food industry. 
and they've been using them for 50 years. And the food industry, when they started using these things, had no clue what it meant either. I mean, they, they weren't even speciating them back then. So, I mean, people just have to recognize this plating thing goes all the way back to before we understood the structure of DNA. I mean, these things were around like in 1880. <laughs> Uh, we didn't, Watson and Crick didn't figure out the structure of DNA until 54, right? So, so this is something that has just been a legacy tool that keeps getting reinstated. And there, whenever you dig, there's no real like rhyme or reason as to why this was implemented. They're like, well, it's a general microbial count and high levels of microbial count are usually bad. It's like, well, now that we can actually sequence these things and like know which ones are good and which ones are bad, uh, it's time to like revisit this because uh, it's going to push agriculture in a really horrific direction, which is to just universally lower microbial counts, which may not necessarily be the right thing. Oh, not only that. So I, you just touched on a whole bunch of points. So I guess first off, um, uh, you also mentioned on how um, some of these uh, bioagents can actually melt the Petri dishes, uh, such as the case of Bacillus uh, amphicoliensis, oh, um, yeah. uh, which was cited in your paper. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a common problem with... Um, some of the microbes actually can, can metabolize the gels. Like the, the Petri gels are oftentimes made with various carbohydrates uh, and um, some of them are digestible. So this, this particular bacillus one has been noted at melting 3M plates. Now it wasn't, it wasn't the plastic hard part. It was the actual, if you ever use these 3M plates, there's, um, there's some type of carbon source, like a gel, almost like an agarose, but you know, it's not agarose, it's a different, um, different carbohydrate, but that, that, is, that, that they grow on. And if that thing dissolves, then your colonies all diffuse into one another. So like my background here, you can see these distinct colonies you get from DRBC. Uh, if those microbes can metabolize the gel that it's on, well, then that just turns into a big soup and you can't actually distinctly count, count the colonies. And that's, that happens with that one biocontrol agent as well. And I'm sure there's a lot of other microbes that do the same thing. Um, such that you can oftentimes plate these things on 3M and they'll start blending together. And now it's a really subjective call. Is that, okay, is that one colony? Is it two? Is it 10? Is it 100? You, you, you really, it's a very, very subjective um, measurement for, for quantitating these things. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And then you also touched on um, testing on cannabis versus veggies, which is a huge, uh, a huge discussion as well. Um, you know, uh, for example, uh, the, the same, if you, anyone that has frontline for their dogs, for instance, um, that can be up to two parts per million on grapes and lettuce in your grocery store, but for cannabis cannot be detectable at even one part per billion. Okay. In, in yeah. California, for instance. So, so there's a monumental difference and I would love for someone to take a bunch of grocery store vegetables and test them to cannabis standards and find out what Nothing the happens. actual percentage of grocery store vegetables would ever pass for cannabis testing. Yes. And then let's have a rediscussion on pesticide residue testing for all crops, you know, because I think that, that what we're seeing more and more, and the more I learn more about, about cannabis, especially with people like yourself that are highly educated on a lot of these topics is, man, if we held our vegetable and food production to even close to the standard that we held our cannabis, you know, a lot of people's health would change significantly. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very true on the, the glyphosate side as well. That seems to be an area where it just that seems to be accumulating. It's being used so heavily everywhere that um, I even saw a, a patent application recently for, like, for glyphosate resistant cannabis, which was I saw uh, that shocked me. But um, yeah, you know, that, that's that's an interesting um, threshold. The other one is I think the myco test, the mycotoxin testing is probably cranked down to 20 parts per billion as well in some states. And uh, 
I've not I've not found a lab yet that's found mycotoxin at any high frequency. Like the fail, I think it's one of the lowest failure rates in most of the labs when they tell you about what do things commonly fail for? Like, you know, these total tests are usually at the top of the list, hack and total use and mold. Um, and then maybe E. coli, salmonella, and aspergillus are down in the 1% range. They're usually usually fairly low frequency, but the mycotoxins, I think, rarely, rarely ever um, reach levels um, that trigger a failure. But I've always questioned why it was set so low. Um, and uh, is that like equivalent to what we find in other food industries? Or is it like, is the cannabis industry being, you know, basically put to higher, higher scrutiny due to it being an inhalation product? Well, it makes you wonder, is it like a glyphosate uh, or uh, not a glyphosate, a, um, oh, um, like an Eagle 20 where uh, mycobutanol, where it converts to hydrogen cyanide yeah, or that's, is, that's like, like, is there a conversion process or is yeah. this an actual, yeah. yeah. And that's a legitimate point, you know, and that one, okay, fine. You know, it's the, the pyrolytics on there are going to convert that to hydrogen cyanide. Uh, that's not what you're going to see when you eat it. So there's a totally justifiable reason for there to be a different threshold for that pesticide on cannabis than on anything else. Um, and, and that, that's actually very, I think that's a, a smart move and it's done it. I've also, I think even Russo had a paper out that demonstrated that thing enriched a little bit more in extraction than cannabinoids. So, you know, low parts per, uh, per billion could easily make their way up to parts per million or thousand if uh, it has a significant enrichment through extraction. But um, yeah, some, some of the pesticides do that. They, they, seem to extra, they seem to enrich better through extraction than, than the cannabinoids. And so you're gonna get a, a difference before and after extraction. To kind of further expand upon some of your, your work you've done down this field, this is another paper that you put out this year, and it's something that I also thought was really interesting and, and didn't really kind of get the, the recognition I think it needs to in the cannabis industry is um, this pathogenic uh, uh, entro, uh, back, well, I'll let you pronounce it because I can't, I'm worse at it than, than you are. Most people just call them entros, but entrobacterici, I think is the name the way to pronounce it, but <laughs> entrobacteria is another bit maybe easier on the, on, on the tongue. Um, but so yes, these, these, are, um, these are microbes that are typically found in, in mammalian gut, and um, they, uh, they are tested for as an entero test or a coliform test. Um, not all states have these in place, but I think, uh, I think Mass has it in place, and a couple others that were following the AHP. Um, the HP had some recommendations and those recommendations weren't for testing thresholds. They were just, Hey, this is how you might evaluate cannabis for, for microbial content. And, and they specifically spelled out in the HP, these should not be taken as thresholds for pass fail tests, but most, um, states ignored that and just did <laughs> put them in place. Um, so, uh, unfortunately we have found, uh, coliform, entro and coliform tests, um, to be in state in, in a lot of areas. Now there's, there are um, EB plates, which are these enterobacteria plates that uh, 3M cells that are that are commonly used out there. Um, and uh, there's also um, a total aerobic count tests. So, so enteros should grow as a total aerobic count, and you should be able to pick them up, at least all the aerobic ones. Uh, and uh, we just compared, okay, if we plate these things on the two different plates, and we measure their DNA, uh, and we put them at multiple different temperatures, what happens? And what we quickly found was that a lot of the microbes would only grow at one particular temperature and not another, and would grow on one plate and not the other in a very temperature dependent manner. So it's just another one of those reminders that, um, you know, most of the labs are actually growing those plates at 37, which, mo which many of the microbes didn't grow at. Unless you put the temperature down to 26, uh, they didn't show up. So if you put this at, if you put these microbes at one temperature, you're not really counting the microbes, you're only counting the ones that can grow at 37. 
And likewise, if you only use an EB plate versus attack plate, you're going to see some microbes on one plate versus the other. So just another reminder that this whole measurement system of colony forming units is, uh, is a very um, subjective game. Uh, it's almost like relativity, uh, where depending on how and where you measure it, it changes on you. Uh, so it's a bit of a Heisenberg uncertainty system. Uh, uh, so that, that's very frustrating because we're always asked, hey, you have to get the same CFU. Your PCR has got to measure the same CFU. And we're like, okay, please define what temperature, what time, and uh, what carbon source you get those CFUs, and then we can calibrate to it. But uh, every time we try and calibrate, the gold standard keeps moving around. The goalposts shift from one state to another saying, okay, in this state we're using DR, Michigan likes to use DRBC, this purple stuff behind me. Uh, some other states are okay with multiple different um, uh, systems being used, and so none of them ever agree, and the labs are always in a finger-pointing games, accusing the others of lab shopping. I don't really think it's lab shopping. I think it's simply, uh, if you run these things as much as we have, you'll realize the error bars are enormous on the plates. And so if you try to get something that, that PCR is known to have very, very tight um, CVs, like you can get it to be highly reproducible. But that doesn't help you if the gold standard is uh, a moving target. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to get our system to, to give you a CFU per gram that is calibrated to every single plate type out there, every temperature that's applied. And by the way, once in a while, if you throw on the wrong microbe, it melts the plates. You know, like there, there's a lot of curveballs that get thrown at you. So um, I would actually encourage folks to listen to um, there's someone in Florida at um, it's her name, Ginny, I think. She's on, she's on the CanMed podcast. She did this really thorough study where she looked at multiple different plate types, very similar to what we did in our paper. Um, then she also did one more dimension and she looked at um, 24 hours, 48 hours, like 72 hours, 96 hours, even, even out into hundreds of hours. And she saw that on most plate types, the colony count didn't plateau until like after 72 hours. Um, so if you're, if you're counting these at 24 or 48 hours, you're getting a snapshot of the initial growth spurt, but you're not getting all the colonies. Um, and I, I suspect this is, uh, this may have not been noticed in food as much as it is in dried products. Like you'll notice in the food industry, when they dry things, it takes, oh, there you go. Yeah. Ginny Curry. Um, when you dry things, the microbes kind of go into a sporulation state. And so they don't snap back into doubling times that you would expect from liquid culture. Like liquid culture, you can measure the doubling time of coli is like every 30 minutes. Vibrio is really fast. Vibrio is like 20 minutes. But if you dry these things and then rehydrate them, they're not going to like jump out of the gate doing 30 sec, you know, 30 minute doublings. They're going to take time to resuscitate, correct any uh, genomic errors with the DNA repair process, and then they're going to start going and growing. And so there's a delay when you ever have dry products they always recommend longer growth times because it takes longer for these cells to reboot. Um, I think she's seeing that in her work is that if you take, she's handling a lot of dry flowers and if you, if you run them out, the plating doesn't actually uh, saturate in colony number until you're out past like five days. Um, uh, so that's, that's a concern because no one's doing that. And everyone's asking PCR to, to step into place, give you an answer faster, but benchmark it to a system that's kind of, sitting on, on thin ice, if you will. Um, I think she has some work in there as well about different about different growth conditions as well. And um, uh, so now that's one side of the table that varies. Now, PCR isn't completely variable free. Uh, let's be honest about that. We've all seen COVID go fucking sideways. Uh, 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 people using PCR the wrong way, right? And, and we did probably a whole the, episode on that with you and uh, 
and Aaron Newkirk, if people want to go back and check that oh, out. Oh yeah. Well. Yeah. So, and, and you know, that, that is, um, that was criminal what happened uh, and that they, they got away under the guise of emergency that they didn't have to have internal controls. And so like every PCR reaction we have has to amplify something from the plant. And if that doesn't amplify, you didn't isolate DNA and the, the, the test is, is null and void. You need to show that you, you got DNA and you did the prep. And that's what the internal controls for. Uh, in, the, in the case of COVID testing, that's usually a human gene. So you can show that all right, you didn't just swab your dog and send in the test. Like there's this thing actually hit a human and we can count the number of human cells that are there. So that when we get a viral number, we know whether it came from a million cells or from 10 cells. You know, a lot of virus and 10 cells, big problem. A lot of virus, tons of, uh, you know, millions of human cells, not a problem, right? This, this ratio is really important. So um, anyway, that the, the some of the things the challenges that that PCR is, is is facing on this is that okay everyone's it's in the marketplace going to have different assays that's fine we need that we need competition um, they they should all have internal controls that at least show that the plant purified correctly some do some don't and then the lysis side of this is really important um, some techniques out there are just doing a boil prep where you just take the cannabis material and, and, and boil it and pray that there aren't terpenes and things in there that might inhibit your polymerases. Um, there usually are. Uh, we prefer to go through a DNA prep to clean, to make sure all that stuff's out of the picture and that we're only amplifying DNA and we don't have these like boil, these boiled samples that have all of these contaminants in there affecting the PCR. Because the, 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 the plant chemotype varies tremendously sample to sample and we have to purify that stuff, that, those variables way. So we don't like the boil prep stuff um, for, for that reason, because there can be all types of inhibitors that can happen there. Um, and then the DNA prep's got to be really tortured to make sure you're lysing open all the fungi. We found that for the first few years we were in the marketplace, we weren't, um, we weren't lysing open some cannabis species. We never noticed that because candida isn't found on cannabis frequently, but it was used in a, a standard that came into the marketplace later from NSI. And we just constantly weren't hitting it and we couldn't figure out what it was. And then we realized, okay, we're not lysing this particular microbe open because we trained this stuff on microbes we had encountered on the plant. Uh, and so we, we we changed some things there to have a much more aggressive lysis to to get those things um, get those things cracked open. So, um, long story short, um, there's a lot of nuance in how to do PCR correctly, um, but I do think it's the right approach because it's more universal and more accurate, and that it can speciate, you know, good things from bad things. Um, yes, there's a propensity that it can overcall things, like we saw in COVID. So we got to be aware of that. It should always be trained against. We got to get in the ballpark of the CFUs, but we have to always know that. There is no one CFU answer that's right. It's very dependent on the plating systems, but you don't want to be orders of magnitude off from what you're seeing from the plates. So they, there does need to be a little bit of a, of a sanity check there. Um, okay, we're not like a hundredfold off from what you might see from plates. Um, but it's unlikely we're ever going to get this uh, to agree a hundred, like within a log scale of all plates. The plates themselves vary by that much. And, and that's what that intro paper really hit on is that the plates are varying tremendously just on different temperatures. Uh, and um, that's just one variable that's at play in the in whole plating arena. We ran into issues with this. We've had a couple of times we've had false positives for aspergillus and couldn't trace it back to any of our ingredients or anything like that on what some of our edible products. And then we've also had edible products where some of the ingredients we're testing at, you know, below cannabis th or over cannabis thresholds, but under food production thresholds where it was completely completely legal in terms of USDA 
agricultural standards in terms of what was okay for food production, but not okay for cannabis production. We've also run into that with aspergillus in particular, uh, making it cannabis edibles where all the ingredients tested fine, but the combined some of them did not, which was very strange. That is very um, strange, actually, because usually um, the kitchen is not going to introduce that, or it's correct. rare that it would. I mean, I can yeah, well, see especially the when we, Especially like, when we clean with UVC lights at night. <laughs> yeah, I can see like a coli or something else, but like it's rare yeah. that you get aspergillus. Aspergillus is usually coming out of the plant as um, it being, uh, and if you've extracted it already, it, it would, I would be, yeah, that's odd. We also I have some very have high bizarre fail rate on, on MIPS. There, our MIPS failure rate on aspergillus from what we've seen is, um, for what we've heard from our clients is, um, uh, is very, very low. It's usually on, on dried flour that shows up. So the, the worst one I've had testing wise when it comes to cannabis products, and this one we just completely gave up on, was um, there's a, anyone that's gone to Africa knows there's a whole bunch of different tubers that are alleged sexual enhancement, um, uh, have sexual enhancement um, attributes to them. I'll leave it at that without getting into specifics. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we tried and tried and tried to find a source of some of these different tubers that we wanted to use for a product that we were going to attempt to bring to market in the United States. And uh, none of them, we could get any kind of passing for, for products in terms of even import to the country better yet, as far as, uh, um, you know, actual uh, application to cannabis, because every, we would have had to like boil, sterilize everything the moment we got it before we'd ever pass testing, because a lot of these tuber crops coming out of the soil, just forget it. Like don't even try to, to pass cannabis testing because if it touched the outside of the soil, you know, it, it, it'll never pass testing. And we, we tried and tried and tried and couldn't get anything to pass testing and in internal, you know, R and D batches. What was it failing for? Was it a, everything, a or a... everything across? I, I, I could show you some comical failed tests, um, but it was, it was false positive. For, I, I mean, we, we, there's no way it wasn't a false positive, but it was specifically with this one, one group of tubers, uh, this one, genus of tubers do you know if um, they were plating it or using pcr to, to sort it out uh i think they're plating everything but I, i'm not 100 percent sure all i know is we tried about five different vendors and three different labs and we just gave up on the product oh that's a bummer yeah uh, all right that's uh interesting yeah i don't know what's going on there but um you know there, there is something that we're putting in place this year um as an option for 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 some of the labs that i think should be really helpful for the, for the communities that um, we've, um, we've signed this, um, this deal with a company that built software tools for calling qPCR curves in the COVID pandemic. Okay. So they, it's like an AI platform that looks at like the slope of the curve and runs through all the logic that I was mentioning before that like, you have to have an internal control that lights up between these CT values. If it's not there, you got to flag this as red, not as, not as green. Uh, and then, uh, if, if the curve fits, if, if the, if the target curve fits within a certain window, then it's, you know, it's a green, it's basically a red, yellow, green system. So people can get a plate of, of QPCR done and then have the software just tell them, okay, these wells failed. These ones passed, these ones need to be rerun. So there aren't humans involved in like eyeballing all this stuff just to just speed it up. So they've been able to train these things of, you know, for millions of, of tests now. Um, and the helpful thing about it is, well, not only is it shown to be more accurate than like human calling, able the capacity for labs to show, like if we had dashboards that could show us that okay, 
Arizona's hot right now for E. coli, and it's that's odd. <laughs> that stands out next to the neighboring states. What's going on there? Right now, a lot of that information is kind of distributed, and um, it'd be helpful to aggregate so that the community could basically see that, okay, we're, we're an anomaly right now. Like, we're, we're getting really high rates, and all the labs around us aren't. What's going on? Um, we have to figure out a way to do it with the right privacy and such that there isn't, um, you know, people want to contribute to this. So there isn't like finger pointing going on, but I, I suspect we could do it state by state. And that would at least give people enough resolution to know that, okay, why Oregon shouldn't be, you know, hotter for this microbe than another state. And maybe, maybe there's introduced into that environment, but, uh, those are the types of things we're looking forward to, because I think that would help. Um, find more cases like what Steve and, and, and Chris found um, that, okay, this is an anomaly and it was only recognized because they had expertise in going on. They're able to, uh, to smoke. I mean, I, I wish we had more of that, uh, frankly, in all the other aspects of it, because I feel like this whole Valley thing got like fakely blamed on cannabis because we didn't have good tools to aggregate what was going on in the marketplace. Uh, and so um, they just said, oh, yeah, it's got to be THC, even though they found it in nicotine pens. And I, I've seen some compelling evidence that that may have been an earlier wave of a coronavirus because it had like a, a Gombert's curve to it. it. It came in and went out at the rate that you would see a pandemic come in and go out. And it had, you know, ground glass opacities and a lot of the same symptoms, uh, predominantly hitting the young. But that was how they diagnosed it. They didn't. You, you, there was an age um, designation to the diagnosis. So if you were old and had it, you, they didn't call it a valley. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's very tentative and um, obviously hypothetical, but uh, we were unprepared as an industry to aggregate that information and try and find those patterns. Uh, are, you talking so about, are you talking about valley floor disease? No, a valley was the, uh, the, vape, the vape disease they blamed on vitamin E acetate. Um, which uh, this this is just before the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I remember I remember that. And in fact, I, I, I full disclosure, I use vitamin E acetate with edibles. So it's um, been used. I thought was kind like of strange. It's been used for a decade in vape pens before this. So why did it yeah. suddenly like show up now? And that, that's why I, I didn't. Uh, to me, I thought it was very. And I saw a couple people who made really good pens get like you know harassed in the industry as this being like snake oil salesmen for, for, for having vitamin E acetate, um, uh, you know, products, but they had been using those things for years before this thing came and went. So, um, what, what was new about that? And, um, you know, we, we, we would do, we, we would understand, I think we'd be able to sort that out much faster. Um, like I, I don't, I no longer like trust the CDC to figure that problem out anymore. They've, they've just proven themselves to be wholly incompetent throughout COVID that if we, if our solution to finding these types of manufacturing problems in the cannabis space is to hope the CDC comes forward with vitamin E acetate is like, we're just setting ourselves up to get railroaded. Oh yeah. It's right up there with stop the spread. Remember yeah, that? One? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we, we covered that in a whole episode. Uh, if you guys want to check it out, episode 251, um, we did an entire episode about coronaviruses and cannabis and side effects from various control methods without uh without triggering the algorithm there um we'll leave it at that um, right <laughs> <laughs> um one of the other things i wanted to mention uh is um and something i wanted to talk to you just because i feel like you could help put the nail in the coffin of this um there's a green powder out now which as far as i can tell is just multidextrin with green dye being sold for hot latent viroid 
And I'd love for you to take two minutes and just talk about how ridiculous I that is. Don't know anything about Have you it. Seen it yet? Oh, no, man. no, no. What is it? There's a green HLVD powder. Um, let me see if I can find it real fast. Um, uh, but there's someone selling a green powder, which looks like it's just, um, I'll find it here. Hold on a second. But uh, it looks like uh, maltodextrin with green food dye in it. I'll be, it's I'll probably, be frankly uh, honest with you. It's probably a PCR inhibitor. <laughs> Is it? I, I was kind of curious because people to... are advertising this as yeah. a HP. Uh, hold on. Let me find the person that sent it to me. Here it is. Um, it's just the most ridiculous shit that I've seen, but I wanted you, because you're someone who's actually test the DNA of these types of viruses and things like that and other issues with plants. Like if you could please touch on, on how just ridiculously stupid something like that is in terms of, you know, there's no one's invented a powder that suddenly cures HLVD. Um, well, no, certainly not, 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 not one that, that you and I have not heard of. Yeah. Nothing in peer reviewed literature, but I, I don't, Hey, I, I'm open-minded, right? If someone's figured this out and it works, I, I don't want to like blindly, um, you know, shit on it, but. Um, oh no, this the, was very clearly snake oil. That's why oh, yeah. <laughs> I happen to give it a shot. Actually. I, I, uh, I have an HLV plant that I am sadly, uh, it, it, it so I have for something for you to try then. So Chris Trump is having really good luck with mosaic viruses and nitrates with treating with um, IMO collections, liquid yeah, IMO. This thing I've been struggling to keep alive just so we have something to test. And uh, which is a bummer because I really can't grow anything else because it's just, this thing's a nightmare. I have to like kind of constrain myself to having one disease plan in my life, <laughs> but I need it for just like getting access to um, you know, material, so I can, you know, keep honing these tests, but yeah, if there's something that, that can possibly, you know, we, we have a few people who've got cuttings from this thing. They're trying to tissue culture it out. Um, you know, experts in that type of stuff that are, that we're going to, you know, PCR it throughout that process to see how well is the tissue culture eradicating this thing. But, um, yeah, if they, if they think they found something like that, that would lower it, well, I'm happy to give it a shot and see if uh, I can, I can certainly see if the CTs move around. I'm somewhat skeptical though. These these plants look like they are on the brink of life. I mean, they're totally wrecked. Yeah, I can't seem to find it now. It was from Matthew Gates. He had a post about it the other day about how this was very obviously snake oil, and I agreed with him when I read the the thing on it. But they didn't have um, any paperwork to go with it. They didn't have anything really to prove their claim about um, whether or not it actually did anything against. Uh, um. The powder. Why can I not find this now? It was right here. Yeah, I, Anyways, I we, I'll we, find it later. We probably had a chat about this before. I'm trying to remember if we went over HLV in, in the past feed, but if not, um, the, you know, I, I'll just reiterate the one thing that we've noticed in that kind of testing is that when plants have it, they're screaming hot. I mean, they're, the the PCR signals, we don't miss them. They're like in the, the CTs are in the twenties. Um, so I, there have been, you know, a lot of some chatter in the field about people getting down to single copy, you know, or four copies of you know testing for this. I, I think that's a little bit misguided that you're more likely to be chasing false positives when you do that. Now, that's fine if you want to throw out clones because clones don't cost very much. But if it's your mother plant, I would never go off of a late CT on an HLV test. If it's if it's not like if it's over 30, we run it because it's probably an artifact. They should be screaming hot. And if it's consistently over 30, you probably have something biologically very interesting there because most plants don't do that. It might, it might have some immune system that is actually fighting this thing quite effectively. And you might want to breed that thing. Uh, my question was, you know, is it possible that people could have the virus present, but that it's not at a viral load that it's actually affecting anything yield wise? Because 
We certainly see that with mosaic virus. And I didn't even realize that until, and I told you about this last time you were on the show, I was at a facility last year and I can privately give you the contact info of them if you're really interested research-wise, but they had a line at this facility and they had four different grow rooms that were in flower. And one of them, um, uh, each one had different light settings but they're all from the same mother stock. And only one of them had a light spectrum that was triggering the mosaic virus. Whereas the other three rooms had cuts off the same mom that had no mosaic virus. That's interesting. Yes. But it was the light spectrum. That was the only variation. All the nutrients were identical. They were solely testing light differential that's as the variable. Yeah. And no, that's why it was peculiar. That, that yeah. That might, that might shed some light, no pun intended on, on some interesting biology. Um, that's going well, on yeah, there. because the, the light spectrum is going to affect the expression in a way that's quantifiable that you could use for testing purposes or some right. other way to narrow the shit down. So that that I've never observed, other than that one facility, never observed the light spectrum being a factor in virus expression for these types of anything, really. No, it's so not that too was really bizarre. Because when, when we take, if you take an, an HIV positive plant, in veg, it's hard to see the symptom. Uh, to twelve, twelve, yeah. Um, and 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 the, the so there there's something about um, yeah the, something going on in the flowering process that is uh, I think so I wouldn't be surprised if like the light spectrum has has a similar artifact as well. It's that's that's, that's very interesting. But you raise a good point about asymptomatic. Um, like these are latent viroids, so. What happens? Do all plants actually succumb to having, you know, dudding and these these, um, you know, chlorotic leaves when they're when this thing is present? I don't know that we have that answer. Um, you know, there could be asymptomatic carriers of this thing. Uh, or could you, case, if it doesn't affect yield, what's the risk of that other to other than to your other plants that aren't resistant to it, right? Resistance. Exactly, I'm or, using in air quotes because it's not really resistance, but you know what I'm saying. If if you're an asymptomatic carrier and it doesn't affect your yield, you're only a threat to other plants that aren't as robust as you are. Um, so that that's, uh, I don't know. I'm just a little bit nervous about going into PCR mania like we did with COVID and calling the shit out of all these ancient genetics in the field because we think we understand this virus when we don't really understand it yet. Oh yeah, I mean, shit, any of the chem dogs, you can get that weird streaky patterning that looks almost identical to mosaic virus. And, you know, is that, does that go back to attribute to that? Or is it just a similar expression because that expression can be kind of expressed similarly. So, so many different ways that, you know, yeah, I mean, really they could have other weird. mitoviruses as well. We don't, we don't yep, really exactly. know what mitoviruses are doing, but we found mitoviruses in the Jamaican lion genome when we sequenced it. And um, they're, they're kind of just parked there. We don't know what to do about them. <laughs> um, but these are, these are mitochondrial viruses that are oftentimes um, only brought out when the plant's under stress. So um it's, or or can they be used like that aspergillus strain is to neuter the pathogen so that it, the plant's yeah, already yeah. infected with something so it can't get infected with the other? Like maybe they end up being some of the best benefits that we have to preventing some of this shit. That's the thing that's so cool about some of the stuff that you do and the science that you work on is that this is all the things that we still have question marks on. And it's so cool that we're in the, the period of discovery. And It is important to step back and realize that viruses have been brought to public consciousness through Fauci-like fear, right? Uh, humans always think virus bad, but if these things have been evolving with us since the beginning of time, um, there's probably beneficial roles for them we don't understand, um, right? I mean, not everything can be parasite. Uh, in fact, parasitism is probably less effective than mutualism. I mean, the vast majority of, I think, of interactions in life are, are more symbiotic than they are uh, parasitic. Um, and, and we just don't probably fully appreciate this, but 
so so just because something is an RNA and it replicates, and and particularly when you start getting to things that are like asymptomatic and, and latent, you have to start asking, okay, the disease is really showing itself when the person's immune system goes down, um, but it's otherwise not not a nuisance, right? Um, so maybe we've yet to figure out what what purpose they play for the survival of the, of the population. Because uh, there, there may in fact be a benefit for them that we just don't that we don't fully appreciate yet. So I don't know. I, I think like the 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 the, the virus um, you know fear porn that we have going on in human biology is really very pharmaceutically driven. That we need to panic people over these viruses and treat them and and inject them and all these things. But um, in in biology, I think it's we probably have to step back and realize it's a lot more complicated than that. And uh, there there may be a role for these things sharing RNAs. I mean, we certainly don't look at exosomes as being like this infectious, scary thing. When, and we know that these exosomes are, these are like, you know, lipids that your cells butt off. And there's usually microRNAs and other, you know, other messengers in those things. And they're communicating, they think. They think this is like a, an internet of the cells is to share these exosomes around, okay? So um, that's not too different from what a virus is, right? A virus is just a protein coat version of sharing some RNA around. And we've been drawn to the ones that are pathogenic out of a medical necessity, but, um, I'm sure there's plenty of these RNAs getting shared that are either mutualistic or, or, um, or not necessarily pathogenic that are important in human biology. Um, well, great, great examples of that would be um, wasps need a virus for their babies to fully develop properly. Um, otherwise, they don't form properly and create the right shape to be an adult wasp. There um, you go. Actually, uh, yeah, there's a really cool paper out not that long ago, I mean, the last month or so on the virus um, component of the development of wasp uh, uh, larvae. Um, but um, if you're looking for something else down that exact topic that you're talking about, there's another one on bees as well. There's a really interesting study that was put out in the last year on whether or not you use antifungal agents on your garden. Oh, yeah, Paul Stamet was involved uh, in some network. Right? Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. On how the uh, antifungal agents that we're applying to stuff with pollinators are being brought back to the hive and they're killing the fungi that the larva need to digest, um, that the bee larva need to digest their different sugars and things so that the bee larva are not actually able to digest them anymore. And they're ending up with 25% of the surviving larva compared to 100% without it. So yeah, well, I mean, if you just look at the human genome, they're like 50, over 50% of it is, is these viral, ancient viral elements, like these lines, signs, alus, right? Um, these long terminal repeats. So, uh, and there's a whole other class of them that are retro elements, I think like 8% of the genome. So there's a portion of the human genome, a large portion of it that actually codes for these, these viral elements, and some of them are still active. So, like, you know, this is not necessarily something that we, um, you, you, we can't take this in the bubble, all virus bad approach. We have to kind of step back oh, and recognize yeah. um, there may be a place for HLV in the evolution of cannabis and a full-on eradication program, like a zero HLV program is likely to be just as economically destructive as zero COVID. I couldn't agree more. And that, that's really where I was wondering and why I asked the question about, hey, is it you know, possible that it just has to reach a certain viral load before these yield effects are being noticed, like it is with mosaic, where you can have it fully latent and completely, while genetically detectable, not expressing in the plant unless conditions are met. Or, you know, because I think honestly, at the end of the day, that's this is, and again, I have no quantifiable evidence to prove this, but I do feel like, given that how long we've all been growing cannabis and how new of a problem HLV seems to be. 
um, that it really is something where if it's below a certain viral threshold, and this is, again, my personal opinion, it's not going to be a huge problem. The same way that we see with mosaic, where if you have healthy soil, it's biodiverse, the plant's healthy, it's a good environment, it's going to suppress it nine times out of 10 and not be affected. Yeah. Um, that's my personal opinion. I think it's a fair assumption in, in that, you know, in absence of, of any other hard data, that that's what we see in a lot of other biological systems. I mean, we've seen it in, I don't want to get your podcast banned here, but we've seen it in other viruses that have recently <laughs> hit humans uh, that um, vitamin D and uh, these other aspects that support your immune system. If you have a weakened immune system, you're going to get hit by these things. But There's a 97% reduced chance of infection with vitamin D above, I forget what the threshold was. Yeah, yeah I, I don't even quote those things something anymore crazy. on social It was media something crazy. I, it I was something crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the trigger words on on like Twitter and Instagram is, is you know, vitamin D. So I've, I kind of stayed away from it. But I think everyone's gotten the message by now uh, that that that's actually really pivotal to have your immune system uh, in, uh, in in gear. And without it, you're, you're, you're going to be more prone to this. I would imagine in the plants, not that you feed plants vitamin D, but I think people get the analogy that you know, the plant has an immune system as well. And um, in the case of the, the viroid, um, I think we need to do more work on like the RNAs because this thing seems to have evolved a way to evade a lot of the other RNAs that are RNAs or these enzymes that destroy our double-stranded RNAs. Uh, and you'll notice hoplite invariant is double-stranded for for really short segments. It's usually, it's usually less than like 20 or 30 base stretches that are double-stranded, and then there's bubbles everywhere in the genome, and it's circular. And because of this, it's it's been more resistant to some of these RNAs, particularly RNAs 3 is the one that usually takes these things out. But um, there is an RNAs 3 gene in Arabidopsis. There's one in cannabis, and there may lead, there, we may find some variations in those pathways that predict which plants like like tolerate this thing better than others. Um, so I think there's a whole field of research there to, to, to um, sort out what um, uh, what we've got going on with um, with the innate immune system in the plant. We had a question from chat. It says, um, is there a potential for viruses to be transferred through mycelial networks? Yes. Um, that's been documented with a hop stunt viroid, I think. Uh, actually, it's gone through. They've documented through the mycelium. Um, and I think it was in hops, actually. I'll have to, I'll have to take up the paper for you guys because uh, that's what got me thinking if hop stunt viroid can do it, uh, why couldn't hop latent viroid do it? Um, that makes yeah, a hell of a lot of sense because they're cousins. Yeah, yeah, they're very small, right? When it, when you get into viroids, they're like under 500 bases, so they're tiny. They don't need a protein coat to infect. They're small enough to like get through cells without having a transfection um, tool, if you will. Um, I mean, that's they're they're a very important part of. Um, this uh, terroir um, virus kind of theory that's been hotly debated in the in the in the in the in the, um, the C nineteen space, which there's, there's a whole class of scientists out there that just don't believe the virus has ever been properly isolated, and and uh, are concerned that there aren't you know the EMs aren't done correctly, and and uh, so on. I'm I'm not I don't subscribe to that from what I've read, but there is um, I think the viroids kind of throw a big um, curveball and, and coax postulates that they need is that they're always looking for this protein coat to prove a virus exists. And then, you know, people start raising their hands. Well, what about the viroids? They don't have any. <laughs> and we can clearly show you can take a viroid and move it from one plant to another with mechanical transfer. Uh, there's no ethical violation doing this like we have trying to study viruses in humans. Uh, and so, you know, coax postulates pretty easily um, obtained with viroids in, um, uh, in, in plants. 
Uh, and the, the same thing is, is kind of being brought about prions as well, because prions aren't replicative like, like, like viroids are. Uh, viroids have a mechanism to replicate themselves. Prions are proteins that don't necessarily replicate themselves, but they're infectious. And um, th there's disease that you can transfer from one organism to another. So it's thrown a whole nother curveball into Koch's postulates. But if you remember, Koch's was a postulate that was, again, back when plating was around. You know, it's, it, uh, it needs to be updated with the tools that can measure these new things. And uh, we've got to keep our, 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 our mind, I think, current on this and not get stuck in sort of a, a, Luddite, uh, a Luddite type of definition of these things. But anyway, I think that's very possible that they're going through mycelium. And so if they're in the same root bed, um, you may not have any sign of mechanical transfer and you may have the flies and, and the insects completely under control and then see it pop up in another, uh, another plant that's in the same um, mycelium uh, connection. And, and that, that would probably be the hardest evidence of it. But uh, anyway, if anyone has an example of that, contact us because we're very curious as whether we can document that um, and uh, how we'd go about doing that. We still have to, we have to kind of brainstorm with people who have, who have access to that type of scenario. But um, I, I owe you guys a paper on that for, um, Stunt thyroid that got us on that topic. The, um, if you guys are do have a hoplatent thyroid or suspected hoplatent thyroid tissue sample, you can send him. Uh, you can reach him through Kevin McKernan73 on Instagram, uh, or you can reach him directly over at medicinalgenomics.com. Uh, and I'm sure he'll uh, he'll get a hold of you and 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 get with you on that. Um, I did have a question on, um, is there anything like prions in plants? Um, for those of you that don't know what a prion is, um, prions are misshapen uh, proteins normally found in the brain that can cause horrific diseases, uh, unparalleled compared to just about anything other than maybe like a, 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 a hemorrhagic disease in terms of it, it rots your brain and hijacks your brain and makes you someone else before it takes you. It is a very horrible disease, but uh, or classification. You have a Fitzgerald, Gene Fitzgerald disease. You have a mad cow disease. You have uh, the human version of that and a couple of others um, that make up that, that classification. There's um, one at uh, uh, the cannibals, uh, they identified in Africa as well. That was a, a different one. Um, anyways, um, is there anything in plants that's like a, that same kind of thing, like a prion where it's a misshapen thing that can be transferred that way? That's a good question. I am not familiar with that, although, you know, you can quickly Google and find plant protein behaves like a prion. I don't know that necessarily manifests itself as um, a prion in the plant because there isn't a nervous system necessarily for it to bioaccumulate in per se, but it may, it maybe affects some other tissue. Um, but yeah, that's a good question. I, I can't see why it it wouldn't be the case. I don't think there's anything about prions. You know, I mean, I'll ask Stephanie Sneff about that. I'm usually, I'm on a call with her once a week. I got to, uh, she may have some uh, info on that because she's been going deep onto prions lately. Um, Evolutionarily, it seems like it would be advantageous for it to evolve a similar mechanism, but especially if it could transfer through mycelial networks. Yeah. I mean, if it's a way, if it's, if it, if it becomes kind of, kind of a bio, um, if you will, a way to, to ward off pests, um, I wonder if that's, you know, kind of like a, a poison of some sort, but um, it's certainly, I, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. You just sent me down. I'm going to, now I'm going to lose sleep. Thanks. Like the ultimate pesticide. <laughs> <laughs> it denatures their proteins. Oh man. <laughs> um, there you, you heard it first. Groundbreaking science. No, <laughs> 
But uh, plants can but, take out prions from the soil. That I did know. Animals. Yeah. Okay. That I did know. They make any of their own is a really good question. All right. All right, uh, it's either time, that we, or next time we get together, we'll have to do a, a deep dive on, on that. Would on, be cool because uh, it's either that or plants evolved a mechanism to prevent that the way that sharks do with cancer and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's shark week soon. Gotta celebrate that, right? Yeah, it's that uh, next week, I think it is. So, yeah. Well, um, is there anything else you want to touch on? I know you didn't have a ton of time tonight. I don't want to take too much of your time. I do appreciate you taking the, taking the time kind of last minute to join us this week. No, thank you very much for um, giving me the, the uh, you know the time to you guys. I always uh, always learn something from you. Always ask me questions I can't answer. I love that. <laughs> well, I always <laughs> love speaking with you, and I do appreciate how much support you give our community and uh, and the help and assistance you've given me over the years. And I always try to support you any way I can. Again, if you haven't checked it out, really great white paper. Check it out over at Biocontrol Agents and their influence on cannabis testing space. And his other paper he put out, uh, or his co-author on, is is pathogenic. Uh, Entrobacteria ACA um, a requirement multi <clears throat> multiple culture temperatures and for detection and cannabis sativa. Um, uh, there are great options for you guys to read if you're looking to learn more about uh, testing and testing regimens, the way cannabis is tested, false positives, things like that. Um, we did have one last question in chat. It looks like uh, can Kevin explain the type of testing they're using? Oh, so the testing we're using um, is PCR based at the moment. Uh, so we utilize um, polymerase chain reaction to target, you know, for, for E. coli and aspergillus, it's very species specific and targeted. It only gets those organisms and we can have really clear inclusion and exclusion criteria where we test like 50 organisms that should hit and 50 it shouldn't and demonstrate that it's um, that that primers are very, very specific. Now, when you get into the, the total testing, it gets a little bit more vague in that we have to then target 16S um, amplification. So all bacteria have a 16S ribosomal DNA element. That's how we can go after those. Um, now, if you, if you choose wisely in that area, you can go after a class of bacteria that generally is in the total aerobic category and avoid the anaerobes because they tend to have uh, 16S sequences of more similarities. So we've designed primers that specifically amplify those. For fungi, there's another region that fungi have conserved known as the uh, ITS region, which is an internal transcribed space or also a ribosomal DNA element. Um, but that is um, just better to target those. If you need, in, in order to target the ITS region, plants also have ITS. So you have to design primers that target the fungi, don't, don't hit the plants. Um, now, there's, there's a couple other um, aspects. I'm probably going deeper than, than you want, but others have asked these questions. I've seen them in blogs, so I'll, I'll just address it out of the gate here. These regions in the genomes are usually variable in their no copy number, okay? So bacteria tend to have maybe 6 to 10 um, 16S regions, and fungi can have like 20 to 100 uh, ITS regions. In fact, psilocybe, we think, has like 36. We did a lot of psilocybe sequencing on that front. Um, so a lot of people are like, whoa, wait a minute, you got a lot of copies. This is how are you going to really figure out CFUs if there's a lot of copies here? But but the you have to remember this is like I'd rather have be arguing over six to ten copies than zero or one, um, which is what we're getting on the growth side. Like some things just don't grow at all. If you see some of the pictures in that paper at certain temperatures, a zero one problem is a real problem. A six to ten is 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 a, is a calibration problem, and it gives you more sensitivity. We would rather have higher sensitivity. So we can get sub CFU sensitivity, if you will, if there's six, six targets per, per genome, the genome can get obliterated, half of it could be missing, you can still pick it up, right? 
So the, I, the ITS and, and the 16S copy number, yes, it adds a variable in, in PCR calculations from CFUs to, um, uh, to CT scores. However, it tends to give us an, an overcalling propensity that we can pick up things that are sub-CFU and you can't do that with plating. Uh, that can be calibrated a little bit, but there are bigger variables at play than, than that log scale that's in flux. The bigger variables, as you'll see from the papers we put forward, are some things just don't grow at all on some plates. And, and so you can never capture them. Uh, so um, anyway, a bit of a, of a deep dive on, on what we're doing there to pick these up. Um, how do we validate these things is we tend to do um, sequencing. Right now we're doing a lot of nanopore sequencing, but we've in the past done a lot of the stuff on, on Illumina where we would do um, whole genome sequencing or ITS and 16S sequencing just to confirm that every time we get a positive PCR result, that in that mixture, we can speciate everything that's there uh, by sequencing it to know that, okay, that you had a positive tax signal on PCR. If you sequence it, what do you see? Do you see any fungi coming through? And do you see any off-target material coming through? And by, by sequencing those sample cons, you, you get to, uh, uh, to resolve what's contributing to the PCR signal. That's something you can't really do on plating. Um, you can try and get a Maldi-Toff involved to run around and mass spec the colonies, but you only get the things that do grow, not the things that don't grow on that given thing. And the Maldi-Toffs don't do a very good job speciating, actually. In fact, there's papers out there looking at Maldi-Toff and Aspergillus, and it's a total train wreck. You can't really sort them out with, uh, with the Maldi-Toffs. So uh, the, real, the real form of speciating these things is the DNA sequencing in these loci. These are the taxonomic things that they hang, hang things on the tree, 16S and ITS, and that's kind of the, uh, the way to speciate things. Um, so we're sticking with um, kind of gold standard sequencing to understand what, what the PCR assays are, are, in fact, picking up. Awesome. Um, well, um, uh, the one last thing I did want to mention here, if you guys uh, really like his information, um, you can check it out over at medicinalgenomics.com. We also have, uh, uh, he has a whole bunch, oh, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. I mean, he's been on the show four or five times before. You can check out his previous episodes. Um, you can also check out the wonderful event that he runs called MedCan, um, where he Can-Med. takes all the people that uh, he learned, oh, sorry, CanMed. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. It's been one of those days, man. I, yeah, the whole yeah. week has been kind of Oh, yeah, yeah. All the videos are up now, by the way, yeah. from 2022. Yeah, that's what I was just going to mention. Uh, if you guys can check out all the CanMed videos um, uh, over on his website, um, I'll pop up here in a second. But there's a, a ton of just incredible talks that are high, highly uh, 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 beyond anything else that's out there on the market in terms of detail and uh, specificity and, and all kinds of things. Um, and certain, you know, Dr. Mashulam and all kinds of other people here that you're not going to see anywhere else, hardly in terms of uh, giving these long format talks. So definitely one of the best conferences that you can check out. He also has his previous years on the website as well, which is a wonderful resource. Uh, if you I haven't checked them out, you really should. Years maybe now that are on the web um, all for free. And I think the news is out that we are moving this to Florida next year. Nice. And, um, We'll keep you apprised of that. I think there's some announcement coming out on on uh, where it's going to be, but it's uh, it's 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 a fun location. So uh, it'll be on the East Coast and uh, should be easy to get to from everyone on uh, from Europe. Wonderful! Definitely looking forward to trying to make it out there this year for uh, for the next one. Oh yeah, it'll be great. Got to get the Oklahoma folks down there. Well, it's definitely one of my favorite things to watch. I was actually watching it earlier this week, so uh, definitely one of my favorites. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about um, how they can find you and um, yeah, yeah, some sure. of the other uh, services that you provide? Um, 
Uh, anyone can find him over at Kevin underscore McKernan underscore 73 on Instagram. Uh, and then I'll, uh, I'll throw your website up here on the screen. Yeah. Website's probably the easiest on municipal genomics. My, my Instagram is a mixture of um, probably unrelated things to cannabis sometimes, but at least <laughs> lately it has been. Um, likewise, I have a Twitter account as well, which tends to be a little bit more focused on lately. It's been a little bit more about, uh, you know, C-19, but occasionally there's some, uh, you know, psilocybe and cannabis stuff thrown in there. Um, but, uh, most of the cannabis and, uh, philosophy stuff you'll find at, uh, at medicinal genomics and, uh, the other site you mentioned. Awesome. Well, I very much appreciate your time. Uh, you have a wonderful podcast as well that you guys also put out that you can find also through their website, uh, as well. Uh, and, um, the, the can med podcast, uh, if you guys are looking for more highly, uh, uh, detailed, um, cannabis science talks definitely check that out and um thanks for taking the time to come and join us today excellent thank you so much as well steve really appreciate you thank you all right cheers have a good evening take care again you guys can check them out at medicinalgenomics.com uh, over at canmed uh, canmed podcast if you want to hear some of the talks or uh uh their um their videos you can check that out as well again really wonderful resource of these higher level talks that is goes into the science a hell of a lot more than most of the other sources out there on the internet. Um, you can also find us over at myself at uh, <clears throat> apcannonutes.com. You can also find us um, at aptestkits.com if you want a full list of test kits. We don't mention that very often, but uh, I had that up earlier today for talking with somebody else. Um, uh, also, thepestclass.com if you guys haven't checked it out already. Um, you know, we do have that as well. If you're looking for a full-length pest course, I will be finishing up adding uh, the last couple of slides so that we do have uh, a full day's worth of content on there. And I do have about another half a day's worth of content to finish editing. That's all edited up or uh, it's chopped up. I just got to finish editing. Um, and then you can also find us over at apmjclass.com. Oh, I thought I had it up here. One moment, guys. I hit the wrong button. There we go. Now it's working. Um, you can find us at apmjclass.com if you're looking for a full-length aquaponic cannabis course. We do cover all aspects of aquaponic cannabis content. I have started uploading some of the new videos on that. If you are a student, be sure to check it out. We do have quite a few new slides and new talks going up on the course. Um, so if you're doing that, and then uh, I just finished it, um, putting together all the content for the next course that we're putting out, which is the microbe and mineral course. So if you're looking for aquaponic mineral and microbial classes specifically on those topics and you have the rest of it down or you're a vegetable producer uh, and don't really care about the cannabis aspect, we will have a shorter version of that that covers all the important aspects of that across all different types of crops with different um, you know, considerations for different types of crops considered. Uh, on the slides, it talks about different aspects of root crops and flowering crops and lettuce crops and things like that. So we should check that out. We will uh, have that available here in the next 30 to 45 days. Uh, I do have a little bit of travel here coming up, but um, we should have that out here before the end of August. Um, so be sure to check that out as well. Um, that'll be up on the website. Uh, I've been working pretty swiftly on the book as well each night. Um, so we can check those out. Uh, here in the future, I have a whole long aquaponic cannabis book that we're putting together. I'm also going to be taking and making an aquaponic vegetable version of that book here uh, once the cannabis version is finished, but um, we're already at 197 pages and I'm not even a third of the way down the book in terms of finishing flushing out 
with pictures and some of the other awesome detail that I want. So it's going to end up being four or 500 pages, I think, when we're done. So uh, certainly the most extensive um, aquaponic book that's been put out there for sure. Um, but that's chugging along. And um, be sure to look for uh, uh, aquaponic cannabis edibles coming out here soon in Oklahoma. Um, hopefully in August, we'll have those through final testing and on the market. If not, September. Um, you'll be able to find new uh, cannabis edibles in Oklahoma. Um, be sure to check that out. Um, we also have at the end of the month, uh, I do believe it's next weekend. Um, let me double check. Yep, next weekend is the Supernatural Conference. I'll be speaking there along with Sunnibus. Uh, we did an awesome episode with her a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Chris Trump, great friend of the show. Um, Jace Riviera, Ben Arcadia, uh, Dan Kittredge. Um, uh, a whole bunch of other awesome people. Be sure to check that out. Um, uh, last weekend of October, uh, sorry, it's been a really long week and a long day and my brain hurts, but a migraine I cannot get rid of today. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, we'll see you guys there uh, the last week of July, uh, the last weekend. Um, we also have an after party at Ace of Eights. Uh, I'll be trying to there as much as possible. Um, and then what else do we have going on? Oh, my silly at the festival. My silly at the festival. All right. So I'll also be speaking out here with Chris Trump as well. Good homie. Uh, August 3rd, uh, 19th, 20th, and 21st um, up in Washington State. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we have a ton of awesome speakers and I'm really excited about that festival as well. Um, be nice to get up into the Redwoods and uh, off of the uh, scorching hot 40 degree Celsius temperatures that we've had all week. Actually, it was 44 here yesterday, Celsius, um, for those of you in, in uh, other areas. So, um, well, you know, any excuse to get out of uh, Oklahoma in August is a good one. Uh, and certainly when you can go hang out with good friends and, uh, and have a wonderful time in the forest, uh, it really can't be beat. So be sure to check that out. I'll be talking about how to build your home aquaponic systems. Do I still bump into Harley Smith at the airport? No, but him and I, somebody asked in chat, do I still bump into Harley Smith at the airport? Um, no, but him and I have this weird thing. I bumped into him probably a dozen times in airports where we're both going to different events or the same event. And it's kind of this little weird comic joke that we have going on where, you know, I always try to buy him a drink anytime I see him in an airport bar. So um, always fun. <laughs> Anyways, um, Thanks everybody for watching. Um, it is, you know, this was kind of a last minute thing. I really wanted to do a talk about his video on the uh, Aspergillus paper and we just could not get to where Thursdays were going to work. So we decided to screw it. We'll just do it on Wednesday. So um, that's how we had the episode today. So we may or may not have an episode tomorrow. I'm going to try and have one tomorrow, but uh, uh, if our guest is unable to make it, then we're, we're going to switch it around because uh, it was a maybe for tomorrow. So uh, that was kind of part of the reason for doing it today with Kevin instead. So and then next week, um, we're, there's a good chance we're not going to have an episode next week. We have a, the Regen Conference in town. It's going to be a lot of people in town and um, probably just won't have time to do a an episode next week. So um, if I don't have an episode before Thursday, we probably won't have one next week, just as a heads up. Um, but we will be back again the following week. Uh, and then the week after that, I will also... No, we'll have one after that. And then the, night, the 18th um, of August, we will also not have a show. Um, as I will be traveling and flying that day. So I don't think so. Did he? 
I don't want to say that on air because I don't know if it's true or not. Hold on a second. I need to look into something. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I just saw him. One second. I'm sorry, guys. I don't mean to give you guys dead air if you're listening to the audio version, but uh, uh, someone said something and I don't want to say the wrong thing. No, that's not true. Whoever said that in chat, that's not true. But I can verify at least. So, all right. Well, we'll leave it at that because I don't want to, certainly don't want to misstate something like that. Um, anyways. We will certainly see you guys again sometime in the next uh, seven to 10 days. I'm not quite sure when, but um, we do have some other cool content. I have a bunch of stuff that's filmed and edited that I just need to finish editing to get up and you guys are going to enjoy it. And we also have a bunch of other cool events that are in the works for the fall um, and possibly some travel. There's a bit of uh, some stuff in the works that I think you guys are going to enjoy. And um, other than that, if you guys are interested in speaking at the Aquaponic Cannabis Conference, um, please hit me up. Um, we are looking for one or two more people for the last couple of slots for that. Um, we do have most of it booked out now. We just have a couple of slots left um, in terms of producers. Uh, and then remember, that's the first weekend of all, November. If you're looking for uh, more aquaponic cannabis information, this will be our third year doing the aquaponic cannabis conference. We're very excited to put it together. We have uh, uh, quite a few awesome speakers this year and uh, definitely looking forward to um, hearing the, uh, the talks for this year as well. All right, guys, thanks a lot for watching, and uh, we'll catch you guys again. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. We're on basically everything at this point, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all the things, and we'll see you guys again next week. Cheers.